Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If You See Her Face by Bithia Mary Croker I heard a voice across the press of one who called in vain. Barrack Room Ballads Daniel Gregson, Esquire, B.S.C., political agent to the Rajah of Unamore, a child of seven years of age, and Percy Goring, his junior assistant, were travelling from their own state to attend the great Delhi Durbar. Mr. Gregson was a civilian of twenty-five years standing, short of neck, short of stature, and short of temper. His red face, pale prominent eyes, and fierce bushy brows had gained for him the nickname of The Prawn, but he was also known as a marvellously clever financier, ambitious, shrewd, and prompt in action. And by those who were under him, he was less loved than feared. Young Goring was just twenty-six, and much more eager to discuss good shooting or a good dance than the assessment of land, the opium trade, or even acting allowances. The pair journeyed with due ceremony on the native state line, and in the little Rajah's own gilt and royal carriage. He was laid up in the palace with chickenpock, and had wept sorely, because he had been unable to accompany his guide, philosopher, and friend to the Grand Tamasha, to wear his new velvet coat and all his jewels, and to hear the guns that would thunder in his honour. Child as he was, he was already keenly sensitive respecting his salute. Meanwhile, the agent and his subordinate got on capitally without him, travelling at the leisurely rate of ten miles an hour, that fine November afternoon, surrounded with tiffin baskets, cigarettes, ice boxes, and other luxurious accompaniments. About four o'clock the train came to a sudden standstill. There was no station to account for this, merely a country road, a white gate, and a mud hut. The halt resolved itself into a full stop. Mr. Gregson thrust his red face out of the window, and angrily inquired the reason of the delay. "'Beg your pardon, sir,' said the Eurasian guard. "'There has been a break on the line. Bridge gone, and we can't get forward, nohow.' Mr. Gregson glanced out on the prospect. The dusty cactus hedge, the white telegraph posts, the expanse of brownish grass, black goats, and jungle. 
any village any dark bungalow demanded the political agent who might have known better than to ask i'm afraid not your honour if your honour will wait here we will send a messenger to the next station on foot and tell them to telegraph for another train from the junction this will arrive at the other side of the break and take you on about twelve o'clock to-morrow and meanwhile we are to sit here cried mr gregson indignantly a pretty state of affairs i'll send a memo to the railway engineer that will astonish him he said turning to goring it's four now and we shall be here till twelve o'clock to-morrow if we don't mind we shall be late for the durbar and i shall have to wire unavoidably absent i wonder if there is any sport to be had said goring descending from the carriage and stretching his long legs any shooting any black buck looking at the guard interrogatively ah that reminds me exclaimed mr gregson the rajah has a hunting box somewhere in these parts cory we can go there for the night yes your honour assented a listener with profound respect but it is four coasts from here a kutcher road and a very poor part of the state i vote we stop here said goring we can shoot a bit and come back and dine and sleep in the train we shall be all right and jolly twice as comfortable as in some tumble-down old summer-house i shall go to cory at any rate rejoined his superior officer who resented opposition the place is kept up and i've never seen it this will be a capital opportunity to inspect it but it's four coasts away and how are we to get our baggage and bedding and grub over coolies was the laconic rejoinder get them ready to start at once to his head servant with an imperious wave of his hand there is no way of transport for your majesty said his obsequious bearer with a deep salaam no ponies not even an ecker unless the protector of the poor would stoop to a country cart which same is a long rude open basket between two round wooden wheels drawn by a pair of bullocks i really think it is hardly worth while to move urged goring as he cast a greedy eye in the direction of a promising snipe jeal it will be an awful fag and you know you hate walking you can please yourself and stay here said mr gregson with immense dignity who if he hated walking liked his own way as the whole suite not to mention the commissariat were bound to accompany him goring was compelled to submit he dared not run counter to his arbitrary companion who rejecting with scorn the lowly vehicle that had been suggested set out for cory on foot whither a long string of coolies had already preceded him the sandy country road wound over a barren melancholy-looking tract diversified with scanty pasture and marshy patches or geels pools of water tall reeds and brown grasses it was dotted with droves of lean cattle paddy birds milk-white herons and cranes especially the tall serious family who danced to one another in a stately not to say solemn fashion truly a bleak desolate-looking region and save one or two miserable huts and some thorn-bushes there was no sign of tree or human habitation
At last they came in sight of a wretched village, the once prosperous hanger-on of the now deserted hunting palace, that showed its delicate stone pinnacles behind a high wall. Apparently it stood in an enclosure of vast extent, an enclosure that must have cost lakhs of rupees. Two sahibs were naturally an extraordinary sight in this out-of-the-way district. The fame and name of Mr. Gregson, a burra-burra sahib, had been spread before him by the coolies. Therefore beggars and petitioners swarmed eagerly round this great and all-powerful personage. Mr. Gregson liked to feel his own importance at a durbar or an official dinner, but it was quite another matter to have it thrust upon him by a gang of clamouring paupers, the maimed, the halt, the blind, crying out against taxation, imploring alms, and mercy. He was a hard man, with a quick, impatient temper. An aged blind beldam got in his way, and he struck her savagely with his stick. She shrank back with a sharp cry, and Goring, who was ever known as a sahib with a soft heart, spoke to her and gave her a rupee, a real rupee. It was years since she had felt one. Although she is blind, sahib, beware of her, said an officious youth with his hair in a top-knot. She has the evil eye. Peace, dog, she screamed. Then to Goring, I am a lone old woman. My kindred are dead. I have lived too long. I remember the former days, rich days, but bad days. Sahib, if you would be wise, go not to the palace, Kana. Goring was moving on when the hag hastily clutched him by the sleeve and added in a rasping whisper, If you see her face, you die. She is mad, he said to himself as he hastened to join Mr. Gregson who had arrived at the great iron-studded gates in a state of crimson fury. "'You say we have land, true!' shouted a haggard, wild-eyed riot. "'But what is land without crops? What is a remission of five per cent to wretches like us? It is but as a caraway seed in a camel's mouth. The wild beasts take our cattle and destroy our grain, and yet we must work and pay you, and starve!' Would that the Raja was a man grown! Would that you were dead! Mr. Gregson hurried inside, and banged the great gate violently in the face of the importunate crowd. It is a very poor district, and much too heavily assessed, said Goring to himself. There is not even a pony in the place. The very bunya is in rags. The deer eat the crops, such as they are since the deer are preserved, and there is no one now to shoot them. It is abominable. The palace was a pretty, light stone building, two stories in height, with a tower at either end, and a double veranda all the way round. In front of it a large space was paved with blocks of white marble, which ran the whole length of the building, and it was surrounded by the most exquisite gardens, kept up in perfect order doubtless by the taxes wrung from the wretched creatures outside its gates. A garden that was never entered by its proprietor or enjoyed by anyone from year's end to year's end, 
save the Mali's children and the monkeys. The monkeys ate the fruit, the roses and lilies bloomed unseen, the fountains dripped unheeded. It was a paradise for the doves and squirrels, like a garden in a fairy tale. The chonkidur and head Mali, he was a rich man, received their great guest with every expression of humble delight. Dinner was prepared with much bustle in the hall of audience, whilst Mr. Gregson and his junior explored. There were long shady walks paved with white marble, immense bushes of heliotrope and myrtle, delicate palms, fine mango trees, peach trees, and orange trees. It was truly an oasis in the desert when one contrasted it with the bare, desolate, barren country that lay outside its walls. I shall bring the little chap here, said Mr. Gregson, pompously. We will have a camp here at Christmas. And then he strolled back to the palace and made an excellent dinner of roast turkey and asparagus and champagne. After this repast he got out his dispatch box and his cigarette case and set about writing an official whilst Goring took a chair and adjourned to the marble pavement outside the palace. It was an exquisite night. A low moon was peering over the wall. The air was heavy with the scent of syringa and orange blossoms. There was not a sound, not a voice to be heard, not a soul in sight, save Mr. Gregson, who, illuminated by two wax candles, bent eagerly over his pen as he sat in the open hall of audience. Goring, as he smoked, thought of many things, of the half-famished villagers, of the splendid shooting that was going to waste, of the grand bag he could make, and would make, at Christmas. Then he began sleepily to recall some stories, half-told stories, about this very place, tales of hideous atrocities and crimes that had been done here in the days of the Tiger Raja, the present ruler's grandfather. He was gradually dozing off when he was aroused by the sounds of distant tom-toms playing with extravagant spirit. The drumming came slowly nearer and nearer. It actually seemed to be in the garden, louder and louder, with a whispered murmuring and low applause, and, as it were, the footsteps of a great multitude. But there was nothing whatever to be seen and it was as light as day. He moved uneasily in his chair and gazed behind him. No, nothing to be seen but his senior steadily covering sheets of fool's cap. He turned his head and was aware of an unexpected sight, as startling as it was uncanny. Two twinkling little brown feet dancing before him on the marble pavement, exquisite feet that seemed scarcely to touch the ground, and that kept perfect time to the inspiriting sounds of the tom-toms. They were decked with massive golden anklets which tinkled as they moved, and above them waved a few inches of the heavy, yellow, gold-embroidered skirt of the dancing girl. No more was visible. Round and round the fairy feet flitted in a very poetry of motion. Faster and faster played the tom-toms. Such dancing! Such nimble feet it had never been young Goring's lot to behold. 
Yes, but where was the rest of the body? As he gazed in half-stupefied amazement, he suddenly recalled the old hag's warning with an unpleasant thrill. If you see her face, you die. At this instant there was a scraping sound of the pushing back of a chair, of slow footsteps on the marble, of a loud cry, and a heavy fall. Goring jumped up and beheld Mr. Gregson lying prone on his face. He rushed to his assistance and raised him with considerable difficulty. His eyes were fixed with an expression of unutterable horror. He gave one or two shuddering gasps, his head drooped forward on his breast, and he expired. Goring looked round apprehensively. The feet had disappeared, the tom-toms had ceased. He shouted for help, and immediately a vast crowd of dismayed retainers assembled around him, and Babel ensued. The Burra Sahib dead? Well, well, it was ever an evil place. Ah, bah, ah, bah, it was the Notch Girl, without doubt. They further informed Goring that the old Raja had once tortured a dancing girl on that very spot, and inhumanly disfigured her face. More than one had seen her since, and perished thus. That morning, at sunrise, the dead body of Mr. Gregson was placed in a native cart, similar to the one he had so scornfully rejected, and taken by slow stages to the nearest station, and back to the city, accompanied by Goring. The doctors, European and native, declared with one consent that Mr. Gregson had died in a fit, an apoplectic seizure. Goring, wise man, said nothing. End of If You See Her Face by Bithia Mary Croker